You're listening to the Real Estate Runway Podcast, powered by Quattro Capital, where we are all about alternative business and investment strategies to help you amplify life and maximize wealth. Here's your host, the recovering engineer turned multifamily investor, Chad Sutton. All right, everyone, we're going to have Logan Rankin back on the show today. We've had him back, I believe it was episode 58. I'm recording this on a different day, but listen in the episode and you'll hear the actual episode number if I got it wrong. Phenomenal businessman. This guy is is just breaking status quo all over the place. He operates a about 2,000 units out of Wisconsin that he built on his own. So just fantastic individual. We're going to talk today about how he and his company are taking a different approach to property management. A lot of common sense in here. Let's get right into it. All right, all right, all right. Real Estate Runway family, welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Runway podcast. I'm your host, Chad Sutton, and we're welcoming back to the show from just a few episodes back on episode 78, Mr. Logan Rankin. We had a great conversation with him back there talking about you know how to build an effective team, how to treat your people as assets, and really just the, re- the super creative way that he earned his financial independence by age 30 and has built an incredible and unique company. But today, we're going to have Logan back on to talk about property management as he is one of the few firms I've seen who has successfully vertically integrated and has has done it in a way that actually is profitable. So Logan, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on, Chad. And I'm excited to talk about this topic because it's always been important. But for the last five years, I don't think good property management has been as needed as it's going to be in the maybe the next one to three uh, for sure. And I think people are starting to feel that too. So I've been good though, man. I've closed on a few deals since the last one, but right now I'm actually working on probably a lot of what we're going to talk about today is systems and ensuring things are running as well as they can and ensuring that you're protecting the assets through good management that we've already acquired. I love that. I love that. Well, let's get right into it. You know, we, we've, and by the way, go back and listen to episode 78. I love Logan's story, you know, just how he, how he rose through the ranks of corporate, you know, put his money into assets and just blew it all up. So it's just incredible. But yeah, let, let's focus on that a little bit. So maybe, maybe start off with, you know, why vertically integrate? I mean, at some point you were buying a lot of assets and you decided, you know, to create a control the CapEx. I think you have a construction company as well and also control the uh, property management. But let's let's start there, and then maybe let's get into the how a little bit. Yeah. I think there's a few different reasons I started to go vertically integrated. I mean, I do have operations and systems background. I also have led really large teams in my Fortune 50 company before, and I think we touched on that in the last episode. But when I was looking at you know, being financially free, part of being financially free is also having control right over your assets. I never felt like I had control over my assets in my 401k. I thought that was more gambling and just hoping, right? I mean, I think people are seeing that this year as most 401ks are probably down over 20%. You don't have control. I started buying these properties and I had a third-party property management company. They're doing a good job. Honestly, I I was fortunate to find a property management company right away. And But when I left my job at 30, I wanted another layer of control. I didn't just want to asset manage. I wanted to build my own property management company and I wanted to have all of the control because I knew just because times were good, because this was in 19, doesn't mean that times in the future would be as good as they currently are. And when times weren't great, I wanted to have as much control as I could as possible. 
And I also knew that I didn't want to be in the business forever. Property management's tough. So my first hire was actually the president of the company. I wanted somebody that was amazing to be able to run the company for me so that I could work on the business. I could work on the systems instead of feeling like I'm working in the business. So, you know, to answer your question, the, the reason why is I wanted more control and I wanted to make sure my assets were protected so I could continue to have financial freedom. I also saw Chad so many opportunities in property management. It kind of reminds me of our education system. It's so, it's, it's so old school, right? It's, it's, it, everything has been built for a long, long time ago and they haven't updated it. You can actually see how ripe it is for disruption. You got a lot of, you know, landlords and property management companies that run properties as if baby boomers are the number one renters. <laughs> They're not anymore, right? It's millennials, it's Gen Z, Gen Z, Gen the, the experience and what the, what the people that are actually renting want has substantially changed and so have their expectations, but we haven't. And that was another big reason because I just saw a gap in not only protecting my assets, but like, how could I deliver an experience or do something different here? So, and then the last reason I'll just mention, because we'll get into this too, is I've been using my own capital. All right. I haven't done a syndication. I don't have partners. So to scale, I needed to be able to reposition my properties or create a lot of value with speed. And property management companies, you have to be really, really wired in to be able to not only manage it, but also rehab these units or reposition these units to be able to change the NOI and increase the value. And if I could do that quicker, I could get my capital back and I could buy more deals. Absolutely. So, when I had a third party management company, you know, I started in 2013. From 2013 to 2019, if you look at my track record or my timeline on my website, I acquired 252 units from 13 to 2019. From 2019, when I started my own property management company to today, I have just under 2,600 units. So you can see the difference, right? Now, some of that was because my capital stack continued to grow because I had the time and I had the foundation of those 252 units. But the other reason why is I didn't just build a, a property management company. I bought it. I, I built it with park construction too, so we could reposition faster. Yeah, that's really good. And I think, you know, I think you touching on speed of capital is really key. And I'm sure we'll get into the, to the control aspect of it. So, so you mentioned that your, your first hire was your, your, pre, your president of the company. And then you went so far as to build it out from there. So did you kind of, when you were setting this up, did you emulate? the company that you had that was that was working well for you? Or did you kind of just blow up the vision and have an entirely new vision for how you're going to staff it? You know, what type of roles you need? I'm curious how the development process went. And then we'll get into more about the actual management, I think. Yeah, we blew it up. We didn't do anything that any other, I still don't think we're, I don't think there's any property management company doing things the same way that we are. We got so many things that are different. So for example, most property management companies We'll have their internal team and then they'll have a property manager on site. Right. We don't have property managers on site. One of, one of the things that we've designed and, and that I realized really quick in the game is every property manager I met, even the very best ones, they are wearing 25 different hats, right? They are the delinquency person. They are the leasing person. They are the move out person. Shit, sometimes they're cleaning the units. They have all these different hats, right? The lease violations, so on and so forth. If you read any good book, nobody can be good. Nobody can be great, I should say, at 25 different things. You can only be great at a few different things. So what we did is we thought of how could we run these properties in work streams 
so that one person or two people can, are only responsible for a few things. And our expectations should be that they're great. So for example, we have a delinquency department. We run delinquency out of our headquarters. We don't need property managers to do delinquency. We have one person that does delinquency for our, our properties. Now, do you think that one person does delinquency better than 17 property managers at 17 different apartments? Of course. to say, yeah. Yeah, right? That's all they do. That is that is her only job. And she's fantastic, by the way. We have a 0.7 delinquency rate. So it's it's our system is really strong. Our person is really strong. We, you know, because again, they're they're not doing 25 different things, they're only doing that. And then, you know, obviously I could do an entire call about just this this segment, but I would just say, like, we always have people on the properties. It's just not a property manager. Like we have different people on the properties. We have a community division. So they're on the property, but they're only checking out the look and the feel. Are the common areas looking? Are the exterior looking? We have another person, another team that only does the inside of units. So they might be rehabbing units. So we, I actually think we have more people on property, but not an actual property manager. And so it's a different, different way to structure your property management company to be really, how do you set it up in a way where the system and the person only does a few things? And you just you just raise your expectations of of how well they do those few things. So that has been, I mean, one other example I'll just share too is like in Wisconsin or in most states, especially during COVID, I think the average is like forty seven days to fix something. So a, a resident puts in something like they need a new fridge, or their you know dishwasher doesn't work, or their garbage. Did you say forty six days? Holy smokes! Yeah, it's wow. something crazy like that. It was like over a month. I think a lot of it was like they couldn't get the appliance or. You know, the, the averages can be distorted, but m- most property management companies, I would say, even now, maybe it's somewhere around it. So 97% of the time, we're doing it within 48 hours. Wow. And we're able to do that because we have people that are just dedicated to doing the service requests. They're not rehabbing the units, right? They're not doing preventative maintenance. They're doing the service requests, and that's their job in their territory. So again, like, we can raise the bar on what we expect from a certain division so we could just do it at a really, really high level. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and really, I love what you said. You could tell you come from a systems background when you said the word work streams, right? But so, and, and give, me, give me an idea of, of kind of your geographical scale. So does this, does this model really work? And I, heard, I think I heard you say territories. So do you have it broken out by... You know, I don't if you're all over Wisconsin or something of that effect, or you're in multiple states, do you kind of set all of these positions up regionally to where they can all go out and touch and feel their specific properties? Or does that kind of depend on the work stream? If uh, it does depend on the work stream. And yes, we are all over. We're just Wisconsin right now. So I think next year, the year after, depending on deal flow, we'll expand outside of Wisconsin. But we are in 19 different cities in Wisconsin. So we're not just in one area. And then some of the work streams have to be on site, right? There's nothing to, I mean, if you got to fix something, you're going to have to be there. But I would tell you, I'm, I think we're at 72 or 73% of systems or responsibilities that we have, we can do with technology these days in-house at our headquarters without actually being on the property. But there's always going to be things of why we need to be at the property. And then we do, we just set up territory. So a service tech might own one big property or they might own seven. So it just depends. And obviously we'll try to make sure that geographical territory is together for them, but we just kind of assign it that way. And that's the same with our turn teams. Like that's 
probably my biggest key advantage right now is not just how well we manage properties, Chad, it's how fast we reposition them. Yeah, it started with like one team. Today, we have 15 different teams that are rehabbing units 24-7. We complete about 150 a month, which means that at 15 teams, we'd have to complete one every 72 hours, and that's exactly what we do. So we're doing ten dollars to $20,000 rehabs in 72 hours. So today, we're going to complete five. We complete about five a day, and that's how we're able to churn through these. But if you think about it, if that's all you're doing, if you have a crew captain and two people that are underneath you, which is what we, and those, t- those team members are, are, cause they're just boxes. I, you know, apartment unit is just a box. So every, you know, you get really good at putting in LVP. You get really good at putting in cabinets. Absolutely. And, yeah. and you can churn these, you can start churning these things out. So it started with one team and then it's obviously slowly expanded to where we are today. And you know, there's crew captains and there's leaders and there's even an operations. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of layers in between, but their goal, they're measured on speed, they're measured on quality, and they're measured on cost. Their goal is to, and and speed first, because it is a key, it's hard enough to find materials, but finding labor for, I think a lot of companies right now have a tough time with that too. So if you can have the labor and you can have the materials, and then you can design a system that is able to rehab a unit in three days versus three months. Now repositioned apartment, you can turn that apartment in 12 to 18 months versus, you know, 36 to 48 months. What do you, what do you think the difference is in interest rates right now? And with that time. So it matters. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love, I love what you're saying here because, and by the way, back in my supply chain days, you know, I, I remember kind of the saying was when you're purchasing a widget from someone else is you can have cost, quality, or speed, pick two out of three, you know, <laughs> because usually when if you want speed and quality, you're going to pay a lot for it and, you know, vice versa. But what it sounds like is is because you now control all of these work streams, you're kind of able to optimize all three to a point. I'm sure one still likes to rear its head every now and then of the three, but it's, it's easier to control that balance when you control the work streams as well. So that's very interesting. They all rear their head once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a constant whack-a-mole, you know. But but yeah, so let's talk a little more on the construction management side because that, that's really, you know, where there's two major parts of property management, I think. One is customer experience because at the end of the day, you're delivering a customer experience and you want to retain your customers. And I, I see how you're accomplishing that with, you know, having people get really, really good at their jobs. And I'm sure there's no exception for your marketing team. And those who actually interact with the people, they're probably very, very good at interacting with people and probably aren't going to be apt to have had a bad day because they just spent a, you know, the morning evicting somebody or something like that, right? So that is right. very good. On the construction side, so speed and quality is obviously you know important when you're trying to roll through one of these things in time. So I'm curious, at what level have you chosen to break out You know what you contract out? under? I'm sure you have a lot of these people working for the company directly. So, you know, are you, how, are you acquiring your own materials? Are you, you know, working with supply houses on that? Do you, you know, still hire out painting to, to third-party companies? Like, I'm, I'm curious where that, where you own the work stream and where you still contract and what you found works the best for you, you know? Yeah, good question. In general, with our teams, by the way, we keep about 80 to 85% in-house. So meaning that 80% of the 15 teams are actually employees, right? They're W-2 employees. And then 
10% would be 1099 contractors. So they do work for us, but they probably do work for other people as well too. But we've trained them. They understand our expectations. And we'll always be at that mark, Chad, 20 to 25% for, for them. And that's be just for expansion. You know, if we were at 100% and then I acquired a 300 unit apartment, we, would, we wouldn't have the ability to be able to expand and turn those units. But at sense. the 20%, right, we have enough margin, whereas sometimes we'll go from 80% to 90% or from 80% to 70% in-house. That's fine. Then we just know what we need to get back up for because you obviously can't hire an entire team as quick as, you know, tomorrow. So yeah. I do think as somebody is scaling a business, you should look at what that flexibility looks like and always be able to merge that. From painting and those other processes, we usually partner with, for materials, somebody that can deliver right to our units. So we'll pay a little bit more for that. So if you yeah. can give us a great price, obviously we're, I mean, we're, we're just spending <laughs> so much turning 150 units a month. I think I just looked at the report. We spent like 300,000 on cabinets last month, but 150,000 on just paint and paint labor and, and paint material. So we can get some pretty competitive prices. But again, for me, it's not just about the cost. Cost actually comes second to the speed. So the majority of our materials are actually picked for us. So they'll pick everything that we need, grab it from the shelves and actually put it in the unit so that my turn team just shows up and they and everything's there in a pallet and they can just start going to it. Doesn't always happen that way, but that that's ideal state. And if there's a snafu, then the guys would have to go back to the store or wherever we're buying it from to be able to grab it. Cleaning's all in-house. I'd say painting's about 50-50 right now, but I think we'll navigate to 100% in-house with that too. Some of those easy, controllable things that, again, not about cost, but just about speed. If you can't get somebody in to paint it and that's the last thing we're waiting for to be able to move somebody in. And we just spent $20,000 on the unit. That's just not acceptable. So, um, and that's the other yeah. thing that it does too with speed, right? If you keep more, if you can keep more in house or have good systems, it's not just about your ability to reposition your property and get your money back through refi. It's about not losing rent. You take three months to, re to rehab it, less three months of lost rent for us. We can do it in, I would say, at least half of our turns for the month. We're not losing any rent on. We're turning them before months even over. And then we're getting really aggressive in the first couple of weeks. Too. Yeah, that, that's really good. And so if I can articulate your process, you're, I, I assume what you would go in and do when you have a unit come up, you're, you're already placing material orders before that unit is vacant. You have someone go in and trash the unit and kind of rip everything out you need. And then this is where I hear your logistics brain a little bit because in your supply chain brain. Because you're saying, look, I'm willing to pay a little bit more to A, not have to warehouse my own material and B, not have to deal with getting it from, you know, whatever storage facility to the unit. It, it is placed in the unit almost in a kit, if you will. And then this is where your guys come in. This is where you control it on maybe an 80-20 basis, some contractors and some employees. You, you control the work streams that then come in and not only rip out, but install all the new stuff. And if everything's there on site, they're not waiting for materials. That's where they can blitz it, be efficient, and the unit can be done in a couple of days. You know, something like that's that. That's exactly right, Chad. And I would even say, um, this might be really valuable to some of your listeners. If I could back up a second too, like I, please, I, I think if you're, if you're listening and you're asset managing your property management company, or if you have your property management company, or you're looking for a good property management company, I think just ask about the processes because most of them are common sense. They're just not well thought out and there's not like systems or timeline. So for us, every time we come up with an SOP, a standard operating procedure, we think about no shared accountability, who's responsible for it, 
How many days do they have? What do they need to deliver? And for example, what, what Chad and I are talking about right now is the turn life cycle, right? When you turn a unit over. And I think this is one of the most important pieces in property management that I think is done very poorly in my experience or in my opinion. And I'll, I'll share a few things you can literally ask. Like I'll just share like how our process goes, right? It's, it's pretty common sense. Step number one is a resident puts in a 60-day notice. That's what we require, two months. So when they put in a 60-day notice, it should go to somebody. So at our company, it goes to somebody. The first thing that they do is they try everything they can to be able to keep that resident. Why do they leave? Is there anything else we can do, right? But they only have 24 hours to do that. The next 24 hours, they put it into our queue with signals for our operations leader that there is now a move out coming and they're in 59 days, right? Because we're on the next 24 hours. That operation leader has exactly seven days to do a pre-inspection. Now, I'll just stop for a second here. Most property management, a lot of property management companies don't even don't do a pre-inspection. You know what? They wait, you have an apartment and you don't even know someone's going to move out and then all of a sudden somebody moved out and you call your property manager like, why is this vacant? And like, oh, they just moved out. We're going to do an inspection to see what's going on there. And we'll let you know how that inspection goes. Like, meanwhile, like seven days go by, they finally do the inspection. So it's been vacant for seven days. Then they come back to you as a property owner with a plan. Then you either execute the plan. And then you're kind of like, at this point, like, I don't really want you to rehab it. I got to get it re-rented. When are we going to, you know, how long is that going to take? The pre-inspection solves all these things. So within seven days, we do a pre-inspection, which is where our operation leader will actually go while the resident is still there. And they'll fill out a form. And they'll look at everything we need to do. And they go back and then they have to talk to the operations director and they have to talk about what kind of rehab are we going to do. We do only three kinds of rehabs. Guys, it shouldn't be an emotional decision. It shouldn't be a Menard special or, or whatever's on sale. It should be at your apartment. We're either going to do a light rehab, a medium rehab, or a heavy rehab. And then you just decide what those are with the, as, as the owner, right? A medium rehab, I want luxury vinyl plank. I want all new flooring and I want the thing painted. And maybe if an appliance or two has to be upgraded. For us, that's around $5,000. Okay? Now, if you decide to do the medium rehab, that property management company, or in my case, the operation leader, should be able to tell you, well, how much, because you have to decide, like, why would you do the $5,000 rehab if you could do a light rehab for 1000 The only reason you do the 5000 medium rehab is because you could potentially get more rent. So I require my property management company to tell me how much more in rent. So in this case, let's say we could get $150 more in rent. Well, it's a simple formula. You take 150 times 12, that's $1,800. 1,800 divided by 5,000 is a 36% ROI. So if that 36% ROI is better than a light rehab where we can only get $20 more in rent, then we should probably spend a little bit more money because I would take a 36% ROI any day, all day. And we should even look at what the heavy rehab is. Maybe the heavy rehab is $15,000. But if we could get $500 more in rent, maybe the ROI is better. So they should be convincing you to do the rehab that is going to make you ultimately the most money. And in our company, they just do that. They do the pre-inspection. They take a look at, well, here are the kind of rehabs that we've, we've assessed for this apartment. Clearly, the this one, based on damages or what's been done or not done, we should do the medium. And then what they do is before day 50, so they had seven days to do the pre-inspection. Then they have about 48 hours to meet with the operations director and pick light, medium, or heavy. Then they pick it and they actually send to our suppliers what we're going to need for that unit 50 days in advance. 
That's why we don't have material problems. We do, but we don't like most people because we're giving our suppliers 50 days before that person even moves out. Okay. And then obviously there's a few steps in between. Then the resident moves out. Our team is there. If that resident is moving out and most of them we have in our leases to move out on the 25th of the month, it gives us an extra five days to try to rehab it before the new person can move out. We literally get the time that they're leaving. So if they're leaving at one, our team will be there at 1.30. That pallet of materials that we ordered 50 days will be sitting there. And the first people that will be there will be the demo team, just like you said, Chad. They'll rip everything out. Then our three, because we have teams of three, our, our three team of rental techs will go in there and they will rehab that 5,000, that in this case, medium turn in 72 hours. And then in ideal state, by the way, I will back up a second. When we know it's going to be a medium flip and there's 50 days to go before that person moves out, what is the other thing that a property management company should be advertising and leasing the damn unit? Not waiting I was coming off mute out. as fast as I could. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're leasing that thing. And we know that the rental team is going to be done in three days. That's the expectation. So if they moved on the 25th, we got the next person moving in on the 29th. And for a leasing specialist to have 50 days to rent that, for a property owner to know that you're not going to miss any rent, but plus have $150 more in rent and a place that has now we've hardened through putting in LVP and new paint so that you know it's pet resistant. It's probably going to last a lot longer. You're going to have less overall maintenance and repairs, which is going to lower your operating expenses. That's huge. So yeah, we our turn life cycle is actually 17 different steps. I think I shared about seven of them. And my whole point in that though is like, Guys, even if you're not the property management company, your property management company should have these steps. You should be able to ask them when somebody puts in their 60-day notice or their 30-day notice or whatever you require, how does that, what steps next? And then ask, well, who's responsible for that? And what's the next step? And what's the next step? And that's where you're going to find your company might not do pre-inspections. Maybe they're literally their next step is we just file the 60-day notice and we wait for the resident to move out. Once the resident gives us the keys, then we go take a look at the unit. Well, that's a bad process because again, you're going to, no matter what you have any, you can't even list that unit to be able to rent because you have no idea what that unit's going to look like. So sorry to go off on a little bit of a tangent there, but that I'm just really passionate about that. And I do think these next like 12 to 36 months, guys, it might've not have mattered before, but every dollar is going to matter in this recession. And you should have higher expectations for your property management company to really make sure they drive that NOI. And this process alone has made us hundreds of thousands of dollars because we lose a lot less rent from most people just by having these processes and people and timelines in place. You know, I love that rant. I just wanted to let you go. It was, it, that was a great process walk. And it was so important, folks. I mean, and, and take what he says to heart, because even if you're just talking to your third-party management company, I'll tell you from experience, probably 80% of them out there cannot articulate a process near that coherent. And it's usually going to be something like, well, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll rehab it when they're gone. And then but no, what that's going to turn into, let's think about the opposite. What that's going to turn into is they're going to show up the day it's vacant and it may have already been vacant for three weeks. So they didn't know it because they haven't done an inspection, right? Exactly. So you've already lost rent there and they're going to go in, see what needs to be done, order materials. Today, you're probably now a month behind because you can't get materials for 30 more days. And so you're already, before you even get started, you've lost a month of rent. You know, and so like processes like this are going to be what this is the balance between construction and operations. It has to be very delicate. It has to be hand in hand. And this is why I cringe when I see like a, a management company and a construction company 
trying to work, you know, in harmony because it doesn't happen, right? There's just, there's no handoff unless you hire people to do that, you know, there is no handoff. So, wow, just incredible wisdom given here. You know, I'd love to keep going on this all day. And I know you're a busy man and we're coming up on our time here, but any, any final parting thoughts on, you know, just, just things we may not have touched on and all the nuggets we've gotten today regarding how you've set up property management? Yeah, I would, I guess this has been something that I've been educating people on and I don't think enough people understand. So maybe we can end with this piece because it's, it is a little complicated and I, I want to spell this out, but right on with what you said, Chad, previously, it's uh, if the property management company said that they can't rehab the, the units in house or they don't have people to be able to do it. I, I would strongly believe that you should not pick that property management company because you will have evictions. You will have those type of things and need to just find a contractor currently. Good luck. Like you will always have significant vacancy. So I'll just love what you said there. You should, shouldn't need a construction company and a property management company. That's what a property management company should provide to you. And they should always be telling you not what it's going to cost, but what it's going to make you. So that's the thing I guess I would end at is do you guys use or have you heard of PPU before? A PPU? No, not coming to mind. So it's something that we, our property management company has been running now for three years, just over three years. And this last 12 months, we've been talking a lot about PPU, CPU, and burn rate. So I'll, I'll end with this one. PPU is profit per unit. I, I see. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you probably have looked at it before and it's just, yeah, the, the acronym, but most investors are not looking at the profit per, you know, they're looking at their NOI and, and that's exactly what it is, guys. So simply said, like, I am, I love PPU because as you scale, you can compare property against property. You know, when I started, when I built my portfolio, I have a lot of small properties. So I can, I can look at what the profit per unit is on my smaller properties compared to my bigger properties. It's like an equalizer and you should pay attention to that. And your profit per unit, by the way, it is all, it simply is at least the way I track it. Cause you can track it a lot of different ways. It is all income minus all expenses, including debt. So that's the difference. NOI, you would not include debt. My profit per unit, that should be exactly what you're made, making, bottom line, going to your bank account. And the goal there would be is like, how do you increase the PPU? How do you increase the profit per unit after all expenses, including debt? And you want to pay attention to that. You want to track that. And you really want to look at what, what you can do. If I would tell you, by the way, in my experience, if you can be over 200, that's a great place to be. Earlier this year, I was around 200. I'm about 280 right now. So obviously per unit, we're making $80 more per unit. And then you can think about all the ways you can do that. But it's just a simple way of looking at the profit that you're making and comparing across your entire portfolio. You know, that $80 increase could, will be obvious things like rent, but maybe it's other income. Maybe it's systems that you have incorporated to reduce operating expenses. Maybe it's a refinance into a lower interest rate earlier in the year. Not now. That would be the opposite now. So, so pay attention to that, guys. I look at that. That's probably the first KPI that I look at after the month is over is what is my PPU? How much profit per unit did I, did I make? And what are we doing to increase that number? The second number that I look at is the CPU. That's my CapEx per unit. So I do not include CapEx wants is what I, what I refer to those as. And CapEx being anything that you're putting into your properties over and above operating expenses. So fixing a toilet, operating expenses, putting on a new roof, CapEx. CapEx wants are things I choose to do to increase the value of my property. 
So CapEx needs would be putting on a new roof. I can't not put on the new roof or water will leak into my units. I cannot redo, put in a water, uh, a new furnace because otherwise I can't heat it. So CapEx needs, I actually include into my PPU. CapEx wants would be like, you choose to put in LVP versus carpet because you think you can get more money. You choose to rehab the units. I think it's just, it's an important distinction right now because obviously capital is is really important as we head into recession. So you want to know what you have to have money for that you need to have money for and then what you choose to have money for. Because you could choose obviously not to rehab the unit and rent it out for a lower price and just not stick as much money into it. So I keep track of CPU and that is how much do I want to put into my units after my PPU. And this actually, this actually is something I get pretty aggressive on. Because the only reason you would want to have CapEx per unit or wants is because you're thinking long-term and you're going to make a lot more money, right? Because this is like the rehab process and putting it in. So usually, and it helps you for as you acquire new properties. So I, I use this as like, what is my CPU compared to my PPU? Because if my C, let's just say my, my profit per unit, and I don't want to get too complex here, but this is so important, I think, because... It absolutely is. I see where you're going, and I wish I had my acronyms right. We we call this something different, but yes, this is so important. Keep going. Yeah, it's who cares about acronym? We're we're speaking the same language. I could tell. So, if my profit per unit is three hundred dollars a month, so meaning that after debt, after all expenses and capex needs, I'm going to make three hundred per month, okay, off of every unit. My but if my CPU, my capex per unit is one hundred dollars. So I'm choosing to take 100 of the $300 and reinvest it back into my apartments. And the only reason I'd want to do that is because I believe that that $100 investment is going to increase my PPU from 300 to to more, right? You got you to gotta look at both of those in tandem. And then what you can do is if you acquire a new apartment complex, you can do that right away. So what is my PPU? Oh, it's only 50 because I bought it really high and the whole thing needs to be rehabbed. And let's say your CPU per month is 100. So now we're at a negative 50 and that is your burn rate. So on this new property, you are at a negative 50, meaning you're still cash flowing. You're cash flowing the $50 PPU profit per unit, but you are choosing to take $50 that you're cash flowing, put it back into the apartment and then grab another $50 from your bank account and put it back into the apartment. So you're actually investing more than you're taking out, which creates a burn rate of $50 per unit. So why is that important? Because then you compare that to your total collection of properties. So in my example, I'm at $300 PPU, 100 to put it back in, but now I'm at a negative 50 with this new 100 unit acquisition. So now that crunches. So now I now instead of 200 net, I have 150. And that can, so in this time of recession, that's something you really, really want to pay attention to because you want to make sure that if you're taking on a project that needs a lot of CapEx or needs a lot of repositioning and you have no idea where you are with your current collection of properties, understanding what your burn rate's going to be and how that goes into your current collection of properties is really important. And I would say, Chad, I'll just be honest, I like to get aggressive on this. So like, for example, for the last six months, my burn rate has been about $200 a unit. So that means if I am making $300 in PPU, I am spending $500. 
So that means just under 2,600 units. If you do the math, I'm burning $200 a unit. So do the math of 200 times 2,600. That is how much I am, I am burning or I'm, I'm putting back into my properties. And I think a lot of people get confused with this and, and they would be like, well, why would you ever do that? Like, you are spending a half a million dollars back in your properties. And obviously, the reason I'm doing that is because I'm going to move my PPU from 300 to maybe 400 to 450, and, which is pretty significant. And my CPU is going to fall because once they're done being rehabbed, I have nothing else to be able to do. It's just, it's just dangerous, right? You just want to be, you want to be careful that you have that capital set aside in a time like this to be able to do. So that was the last thing. I know that that was a little long too, but I do think the uh, PPU and the CPU and your burn rate is something you can really pay attention to, especially if you're buying value add properties. You know, I'm, I'm so glad you went on that rant, and this is where I'm going to nerd out with you for a second because. You know, we, we do this same thing, but we look at it a little bit differently in that, you know, you have to think about two things on a, on a value add proposition. You have cash flow, which I think everyone's pretty good at underwriting cash flow. You figure out where are rents today? Where are expenses? What are they projected to be? What's going to happen to your taxes? What, what are you going to rent things up at over time? So we're good at predicting, you know, in place and pro forma, right? The two points in time. But I think what people forget a lot of times is there, there's, there's a point where you start and a point where you finish. And the line between those two points could take a lot of different paths to get there, right? And so, you know, what I require our teams to do when we're putting together a business plan is we have to actually focus on cash. We actually model the operating and capital accounts over time. And then, you know, when you're looking at things monthly, like build yourself a monthly pro forma and figure out, okay, if I take this unit offline here, I rehab it, I bring it back in, you know, the next month or whatever your, or your tack time is. You know, you bring it back. Now your income has risen and you can kind of model income and expenses over, line, over time as well as CapEx. Well, tying it back to what Logan is saying, he's got two very specific metrics he's chosen to look at, which is effectively your, your net income, like not net operating income, but net income divided by units. And then, your, and then what CapEx load you're going to want and need to put into the property. So yes, you can net out. And if you're negative, you can have a negative burn or a, a burn rate of cash. So what we do is we actually will will say, okay, well, if I'm going to burn negative cash, let's say it's going to take me 12 months to do this project. So I know I'm going to be spending more than I'm earning on the property for 12 months. So you have to figure out how much cash do you need to have. And then I want to stick that in the account and the model and I want to watch it burn down over time and make sure I, st I don't bleed out and I have a little bit of margin for things to go wrong. Because like what he's saying is you have to be careful with that. You have to spend money on your building to, to increase the value. And sometimes, especially recently, maybe not in the future years, but in recent times, you've had to pay a lot more for things than they're really worth you know, because of the value add. And so you have to be very hyper-focused on not just the projected cash flows in place and future, but on the cash and, and how long it's going to take you to do that, what your burn rates are, and make sure you don't bleed out in the middle of it. Because I mean, the only way you get in trouble in this business, folks, is two ways. It all boils down to two things. You run out of time or you run out of money, right? If you're forced to refinance or sell at the wrong time, you're out of time. That's a problem. If you're, if you're forced to refinance right now and you're, you're not ready, you're probably in trouble. And if you run out of money, you bleed out. Well, now you can't finish the project. You're in trouble. So... <laughs> Anyway, I had to get on a soapbox there, but I love everything that you said. So happy to have you back on the show, Logan. You are just, you're a business mind in real estate. So I'm, I really appreciate the nuggets you're dropping today. 
Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me on again, Chad. It's been fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, everyone. Well, this has been another episode of the Real Estate Runway podcast. Maybe we can convince Logan to come back on and share some more of his secrets in a few weeks. But until next time, we'll talk to you later. All right, everyone. That was a fantastic episode with Logan we just had. Remember, if you get any value out of this show, I would greatly appreciate it, as would the Quattro Capital team. If you would scroll down and leave us a five-star review, maybe just a little thoughtful comment. Those are really worth their weight in gold, and they truly help us get the show out to more people. So we so appreciate you for doing that. We appreciate you as listeners. And if you want to follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram, please follow us at Team Quattro Capital, all one word, no spaces or special characters, or just visit us at thequattroway.com. Until next time, over and out. We hope this episode was insightful and brought value to your day. If so, please be awesome and leave us a five-star review. Find out how Team Quattro can help you at thequattroway.com. Until next time, this is the Real Estate Runway Podcast.